This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I am speaking with Dr. Lisa Schulman, who is the, a developmental pediatrician, the Director of Autism Services and Interim Director of the Rose F. Kennedy Center at Montefiore. Dr. Schulman, thank you for being on the show and good morning. My pleasure. So... In addition to all of the other things that I just listed out in terms of your various titles and, and current work, you were also a Spark Principal Investigator from the Albert, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about Spark, uh, which is a landmark autism research project. But before we get to very directly into that, I'm hoping you can just talk a little bit about yourself, your professional background, all the sort of things that you've done leading up to what you're doing now. So I have uh, always been interested in autism. Long before autism was a household word, I uh, wrote my first term paper in ninth grade about a comparison of two books, one describing autism and one describing schizophrenia. And I went on to go to college, go to medical school at University of Pennsylvania. I did a pediatrics residency at Mount Sinai, and then I heard about the field of developmental pediatrics and decided to do a developmental and behavioral pediatrics fellowship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and to be honest, I just never left. I loved it so much. Mm -hmm. So I've been here about 27 years. Mm -hmm. And like the old joke, if you stay long enough, they eventually put you in charge of the place. That's yeah. kind of what has happened. Mm. Um, my first responsibilities had been related to running an early intervention program. Okay. The, so the Montefiore, or the Rose F. Kennedy Center, is located in the Bronx, mm -hmm. and I headed its early intervention program for 17 years. And again, this was before everything was all about autism. And we would see very little children referred because they weren't speaking or had concerning or confusing behaviors or were not eating as expected or walking on their tiptoes. And we would say, wow, this 17-month-old, this 19-month-old looks like they have autism. How early can you diagnose autism? What instruments exist. And so we got very involved in the early diagnosis of autism, and that has basically been my career. So at this center, we serve about 2,000 children with autism. We provide diagnosis and um, also quite a few educational and therapeutic services. And as doctors, we do a medical evaluation to help us understand what is the cause of autism for a particular child. Mm -hmm. What are the co-occurring medical, emotional, behavioral, and developmental diagnoses? Um, so this is my passion, and participating in SPARC is a, a natural step in the direction of, again, trying to help people with autism live their fullest possible lives by understanding what may have caused the condition. We're in a better position to, as we look ahead, 
understand and make steps toward possible treatments, medical treatments. Wow. Um, That's quite a background. And actually, I think you and I may have had, probably not ever in person, but our careers crossed paths at one point because my first job after um, graduate school where I got a degree in in clinical social work uh, was as an early intervention service coordinator in Manhattan, the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, Southern Westchester. And I know that I had folks on my caseload who pro- I, I know accessed the, the services uh, at Montefiore because I remember being there. So um, so I definitely have some um, personal experience and professional experience seeing, you know, seeing those children that you were describing at very young ages who were presenting as nonverbal or mute. I, I remember that being a word that was that was uh, used very frequently. Um, and then a series of, of therapists and, and uh, interventions coming into their homes to work with them and their families and seeing enormous strides made. And as, as far as I understand, um, early intervention has continued to prove to be one of the very specific uh, types of intervention that can have a, a clear positive outcome um, for children with autism. Would you agree with that? Is that's, that's what my understanding is. Yeah, absolutely. So now I'm putting on my other hat, which is that I've um, been a Center for Disease Control Act Early Ambassador to New York State, and in that capacity, I'm right now emeritus, in that capacity, the goal was to promote um, the earliest diagnosis of autism and other developmental disabilities because earlier intervention makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that firsthand, but I know that, you know, it's one of those things that if you can if if uh, if you can access those services, which is really designed that you can access those services, you know, it really is an excellent thing. Although what I used to find um, and hear from families is that they sort of realized it sometimes too late when their child was already three or approaching three and kind of aging out of that that potential um, opportunity. But I think the more we talk about it and the more we remind folks that it's available and it's important and it can make a significant difference, the better. Right. And there are also screening that are recommended in every you know, medical home at 18 and 24 months um, meant to pick up children while they stu- still could benefit from early intervention, kind of at the earliest points. Absolutely. And those weren't in place when we started our early intervention program. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say that too. That that has been a change that you've probably seen over the course of your career. Where would you say that it's 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 a true statement that pediatricians are have are sort of better equipped now than they than they were at one point in terms of signs and symptoms and things to look for, things to listen to when a parent might be, you know, who's obviously the one seeing their child day in and day out since the day they're born, kind of reporting to them at a doctor's office. Is that, do do you see that change um, moving in the right direction? Absolutely. Good, good. Absolutely. That's been a focus of pediatric education. And again, one of the roles of the screening instruments, the MCHAT is is, uh, utilized in a lot of practices, is to elicit information and also dialogue and provide some anticipatory guidance to parents. Wow, you know, you didn't know that, um, you know, parents may often say, I didn't know that my child should be speaking in phrases or sentences at this point. Right, right. But I think the other strategies to promote the earliest diagnosis of autism has been to kind of empower others in the community, whether it's daycare providers, um, WIC programs, 
grandparents, and certainly parents mm-hmm. to actively monitor children's development and if there's a concern to bring it to their pediatrician and if they're told to let's watch and wait, you can always refer to early intervention on your own. Right, right. Good. I mean, these are all these are all positives um, for so many families and so many people affected. I want to follow up on, on b- before we take a quick break, I want to follow up on something you said um, when you were introducing yourself, which is that, that part of your work has been to focus on what the cause is for each individual child in terms of what has caused or is causing their autism. So to me, there's a nuance there. You're not saying what is the cause of autism in general. It seemed like you you purposely kind of phrased it in that way that you're looking at the cause for each individual person. Did you mean to something by that? And can you explain it? Well, there was a time um, a number of years ago when the, the the stated mission was looking for the cause of autism. And, you know, it was evident to those of us actively involved in working up and treating children with autism that there wasn't going to be a single cause. There were going to be many causes of autism. And there isn't a single autism gene. Um, research suggests there's 500 to 1,000 genes that are likely involved in autism and possible environmental factors as well. And so the thinking definitely has gone from the effort to find a single cause that will apply to all children um, to what is going on that is contributing to this pattern we call autism for each child separately, individually. And, you know, that that's a really nice segue to Spark's mission. There's been a tremendous need to, well, I'll take a step back to say parents often express frustration because they know their child has developmental differences and they often feel that it's biologically based. The child may have additional medical problems, may have seizures, mm-hmm. may have gastrointestinal problems, and but what's being offered is purely therapeutic um, services, educational services, rather than medical treatments. And the idea would be that in order to offer medical treatments, we need to, in general, know what is the cause of a condition. And there's certainly tremendous evidence that the most common causes of autism are genetic, but not a single mutation or problem, but many, many. And so the mission of SPARC, which really originated from that research end, the SPARC uh, program is under the auspices of Safari or the Simons Foundation Autism Research Initiative. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the place of saying, in order to help the population of individuals with autism live their fullest possible lives, we need researchers who have good data to work with in order to determine all the different causes of autism okay. and treatments that may apply to each of those mutations or abnormalities. And so the mission of Spark has been to build an online research community, essentially, of at least 50,000 people with autism um, in order to provide that data, both feedback to families about what may have caused the autism, Mm -hmm. but also 
to provide that data to researchers to help take the next step in the direction of what may be medical treatments. Okay, that's uh, that's a great place. We're going to take a quick break, but that's a great place to stop. We're going to come back, and I want to hear all about like sort of a, di- a deeper dive into how you are going about doing that and then what the future implications, um, what you're hoping for. So if, uh, if you don't mind, we're going to take a short break. Um, this is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state of the art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence-based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozanski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And I've been speaking today with Dr. Lisa Schulman, who wears many hats, as you said earlier, um, and has worn many hats in the field of developmental pediatrics and uh, research and uh, consulting with the CDC and early intervention at Montefiore, the Rose F. Kennedy Center uh, at Montefiore. And but but now in the second part of the show, I'd love to dive a little bit further into your work with Spark. You we we finished with you giving a great overview of kind of the the the, the mission, which is to build an online research community. I think with you said with what you said, fifty thousand sources of research is that what or, or sources of data is that what you left with? Right. the The idea is to build an online research community mm-hmm. um, with data. And when I say data, here we're speaking about genetic material. In this case, it's spit uh-huh. <laughs> um, from 50,000 people with autism and their biologic parents and siblings. And the idea really is to both give back clinical data to families when a genetic change is discovered that we are confident is related to autism, so they will get that feedback. But also, in order to kind of look with the wider lens of what are the many causes of autism, and then the next step, how to potentially treat them, a lot of samples are needed. Mm-hmm. And so this whole program is designed to create a kind of long-term living database of this data, the genetic samples um, from these 50,000 people and their parents and siblings um, that researchers can then access in order to say, you know, oh, I want to work on that particular mutation. I want to work on that deletion. Mm -hmm. Then families can be approached by researchers who are focusing on certain abnormalities. If a child has been found to have that abnormality in their um, genome, they may be approached, and the family has an option of either participating or not. Mm -hmm. 
but kind of this is how science moves along, kind of one step at a time. And the first step is collecting the genetic material. Right. So walk us walk us genetic material. So if you if you wouldn't mind, walk us through what that experience would be like for a participant um, or sure. somebody who wants to who wants to get involved. Because I would assume you're still looking for people to to help add to this data community, correct? Oh, absolutely. The goal is fifty thousand. Okay. We are not there yet. Where where just out um, of curiosity, where are you? How 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 many how many people do you have represented at this point? I'm actually not positive. No. I'm not positive. We don't have I'll we don't have to guess. That's to that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, you can always get back to us, and then and then when we share the uh, the interview, we can always provide an update. But I was just curious. But the the most important thing is that yeah. you're still looking. Well, I so, can say about our site, um, and we're the one site in New York State. Um, that we've been collecting samples um, for uh, eight months, mm-hmm. and we have, I think, 150 samples so far. Okay, okay. So, um, so there is there is opportunity for families to get involved. So let's go back to the first question and just walk us through the process, because when we were off the air, I know you were mentioning to me that you, like many other researchers in this field, do recognize the challenges that the people you're trying to get involved in the study may face in terms of getting to a location or spending an entire day or that kind of stuff. So, so what is what is this? data collection look like? Okay. So this material that the genetic testing is done on is, as I said, saliva or spit. Um, And if the spit can be collected at home, this is something that can be completely completed at home by a parent. It involves going onto a website or calling us, and I'll give you all of that contact information. Mm -hmm. And we and a family can request or we can help connect them with getting the materials sent to their home. There's logging on and creating a password for both parents. Both parents really are needed in order to interpret the genetic material from their child, Okay. even if their child is an adult. And then with both parents' permission, then everyone contributes spit. Um, It goes into a special tube. It's not that much. Um, And then uh, various questionnaires um, are answered about the child or the adult with autism. And basically, the spit is sent back. And and, Um, and so when... packing materials are provided. (laughs) You make it as easy as Um, possible. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The other thing is, like, I remember when we started this, um, which, as I said, was about eight months ago, I had children where I said, I don't know how, if this child can spit on request. Mm-hmm. Some of the children are very young. They are not inclined to imitate. But there is a technique using a sponge to collect spit, and we've had nobody who we've been unable to collect the, the saliva from. So if a family encounters kind of obstacles in getting the sample, there um, are ways to well let us know when we would try to figure out um, a way to help you get that done. Right. I'm thinking um, I'm thinking a, a spit a party, big, but but maybe, you know, maybe yeah, for some families. It. Um, so it sounds like you've really gone out of your way to make it as simple as possible, ideally to be something that could be done at home. And interesting that you say that, you know, 
some children, I, I, not, I wasn't thinking of this, but as soon as you said it, it makes sense that there's by nature of the fact that you're trying to get um, somebody uh, challenged by autism to sort of follow a direction that many times you have to break down directions into very small parts. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, right. what would I even start with in terms of spitting into a tube? It's also not something you see people do on a regular basis. So there's not a whole lot of context for it. But basically, from what I'm gathering, the message to, to families who might be listening, who are by and large going to be New York New York families, um, and again, by and large, are going to either be the parent of somebody on the spectrum or be in the field, know somebody or know a group of families who may very well, and I would encourage people to get involved in this study. I think it really is, like what you said before, it's what leads things forward in terms of research and understanding. The message really is don't psych yourself out of this, right? Don't, you know, don't just say, oh, well, Absolutely. my kid, you know, really wouldn't be able to take that direction or wouldn't be able to to um, imitate me. You want people to reach out to you and try, and you'll then work with them to, to try to get the best outcome, correct? Absolutely. And if there's a setting where there are a group of parents, like a special school for children with autism yeah. um, that has a parent, um, you know, visiting day or a day when families come together, you know, we will go on a road trip. So there are ways in which we want to help families achieve providing the sample Getting the individual feedback um, about a genetic change um, that we are confident contributed to autism in a growing number of samples, and then contributing to this and participating in this online research community that seeks to determine the causes of autism and develop better treatments. Okay. So that's a great message. And uh, let's, we're going to run out of time. So I want to make sure we get your contact information. Where yes. can people, where do you want people to go? Okay. All right. So people can go onto the Spark website by going to www.sparkforautism.com org slash nyc they can call us here if they have any difficulties with the website or need other forms of help at 718-839-7065 or email us at spark at einstein dot yu dot edu okay i'm gonna repeat an energetic all of this. Sure. You have an energetic what? Somebody who's there ready to respond? I have an energetic set of um, fantastic research coordinators who make it a priority to respond. Excellent, excellent. They wear the research hat. That's the goal. Well, I I think that that's actually a very important aspect of this because when you're making that commitment or taking that first step to say, you know what, maybe we can do this, you definitely want somebody on the other end to say, yes, you can, and here's how we're going to do it together. So it sounds like that's what you guys are all about. Let me repeat this. That's Molly and Amy. Molly and Amy. All right. A shout out for Molly and Amy. Yep. Um, and hopefully people who listen to this show um, will also um, recognize that this is us, you know, an opportunity for you to say, hey, I heard about this on 1 in 59, and I'm going to go to one of these uh, things that I'm going to say again right now to get more information. So you can email at spark, S-P-A-R-K, at einstein.yu.edu for more information. You can also go to the website sparkforautism, all one word, dot org slash NYC, or you can call the following number, 718 839 
7065. After all the years of doing this show and interviewing people doing all sorts of different kind of research, one thing hits home every time, which is um, there is a, an enormous recognition for the fact that none of this goes anywhere unless people like you all listening kind of saying, yes, I'm going to be a part of moving the science forward. And so, again, just a just an an encouragement to give a call, check out the website, write an email, find out more information um, rather than, you know, kind of saying, well, this may not work for me, so I'll just move on. This is how this is how we are getting ever better at understanding autism. And I think that is a positive uh, all around. So, Dr. Shulman, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for all the information you shared and for all the work you have done and continue to do in the field. Thanks for having me, Eliza. It was really fun and a pleasure an honor. All right, great. This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 